have your Bible with you, it's Mark chapter 9. We'll finish up chapter 9 today in our Gospel of Mark series here on Palm Sunday and then lead us right into Easter Sunday next week. I am heartened uh, that we sang Come Thou Fount, a song about grace, that we sang about the love of God just now and that we just read our Beechwood Creed that ends with we believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead and in life everlasting because I will admit the text I'm about to read to you, these eight verses, this is some hard stuff. And we're going to deal with it today. And so all these things in balance, let's get to work on Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read the text for us. We'll pray and we'll dive in line by line. In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray over this time in the Word. Lord, thank you for your teachings, even the hard ones. And Lord, this is a celebratory day, Palm Sunday, where we, we can look back on, uh, in history to this triumphal entry. It is, it is also an opportunity every time we get in the Word in the Gospel of Mark to see what you wanted your people to know. Last week, it might, it might be a, a message that in some ways resonates with us, that, hey, to be great, serve, and then coming right behind it, there is these texts about the seriousness of sin reality of judgment. So Lord, be with me. Help me to, to, to teach it clearly. I pray that you'd be with your people. The Holy Spirit, you would, you would meet with your people today, individually and corporately. There is a, a conviction of sin that Jesus wants in this passage. So Holy Spirit, do your work in your people. Do your work in my heart as we go through this text together. In Jesus' name, amen. What a passage we have today, right? Millstones around necks, drowning in the sea, cutting off limbs, unquenchable hellfire. These are the passages in a lot of churches around the country. These things get skipped. But our style of teaching here at Beachwood is we don't skip. We go through the book together. And I will admit in my heart, there were several times this week that I just wanted to call in sick in some way. I don't know how we do that here, but I almost wanted to call Doug and just say, I, I can't do this one. Because... This is hard. And despite it being hard, we must, we should wrestle with every teaching of Jesus. The ones like last week, where we kind of feel good about it. To be great, serve. And then he turns around and gives us millstones, unquenchable hellfire, and clucking out of eyes. This is some hard stuff, but we got to do it together. And you know me, style-wise, I'm sunshine and lollipops, guys. I, I, this, is not my, this is not my forte. 
I love teaching you stories. I love dialogue uh, and, uh, and settings and teaching you what, what, what the text would have been like when it was written. And we bring the Bible to life in part because I know that all the power we need is in this book. And if I can help it come alive to you, well, you'll get into it yourself. And I want to do that. That's not what this is. It's not a story today. When you go through the gospel, sometimes you teach Jesus' stories, but then you have to teach Jesus' teachings. Today is not teaching a story. Today is teaching a teaching, which also requires a different approach that I want you to be prepared for. Usually what I do is I tell you the story. We come up with voices, and we do, we, we do a, a fun idea of what the story would be like. We make it come to life, and then at the end of telling you the story, we take some time and talk about what it means for you, how it should change your life. We're going to do that differently today. Because this is not a story, this is a teaching, we're just going to do that the whole time. There won't be a big ending where we just talk about, now here's what it should mean for you. We're going to do it as we go. We're going to do the applications, what that's called, the application of the sermon as we go. So I've already admitted to you, I don't have a natural appetite to teach these things, uh, in part just because I know some of you might have even grown up with a, a setting that's every week is hell, fire, and brimstone. That's an entire genre of preaching. And so I know it's been done poorly, uh, but the, it's in the Scripture, right? It's the next t- text we have, so let's do it. The Bible has all kinds of stories and teachings. Some are joyous, interesting, and funny. Some are challenging, sobering, and uncomfortable. And because we embrace the whole Bible, today we are going to look at one that's challenging, sobering, and uncomfortable. So some context that you need, and then we'll dive in verse by verse. Remember that he's teaching his disciples. Last week he went into a house, and they start having that dialogue about who is the greatest. And then John does that, uh, that question. Well, we saw a guy casting out demons and... Should we have done that? He says, you shouldn't have done that. So we're in the same room. We're in the same teaching. He's talking to his followers. So remember, his audience is his disciples, not the general public. It's also important to note the bookends of the teaching. He starts with, hey, you guys are talking about greatness and how that relates to each other. That's the beginning. And then the ending is, be at peace with each other. Have, Have salt among yourselves. We'll talk about what that means. And so in between this teachings on how we're going to do life together, there's a lot of teaching about how to deal with sin. There's something that tells us something there, that sin, that these topics are to be dealt with together in community. So there's a lot of teaching here. Let's get to it. Let's read verse 42 again, and we'll talk about it. Verse 42 in Mark chapter 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's talk about these little ones who believe. I think some of you might have heard this in the past taught as those who would cause a child to sin. It's not what it means. He, Mark gives us immediately a clarifying statement. It's little ones who believe in me. It's younger Christians, Christians that haven't come along as far as you have. The, the Christians who know more, again, he's talking to his leaders, talking to his disciples, saying to leaders, hey, the, if you would lead someone behind you who hasn't known everything you know, if you would lead that person to sin, this is that, that judgment that would be for you. So he's talking about believers, and he is teaching his leaders, he might be teaching you today, the example you set for those who don't know all you know, that haven't come along in the faith, the example you set, there will be consequences to that. You will be held accountable for the example you set to people when you wear the name of Jesus and the people who are trying to learn about Jesus, who don't know all you know about Jesus. You'll be held accountable for the example you set. I, I, I wonder if you could identify people in your life, however many years you've been on the earth, 
people that when you watch them, they made following Jesus easier. You saw their example. You, you saw what they taught and what they said, and their life matched it. And it made growing up in Jesus, growing up in the faith, easier. You saw them talk about being a peaceful person, and they were not cantankerous. They talked about not losing their temper, and they didn't lose their temper. They talked about generosity, and they were generous to others. They taught about how to treat a spouse. They taught their, taught their spouse well, or treated their spouse well. They talked about forgiveness, and they were a forgiving person. And maybe you've run into people that they made following Jesus easier because their actions matched their words. And equally, some of you could probably tell me some stories about some folks who made following Jesus harder. They talked about the need to be a peacemaker, and their online presence is quite cantankerous. Their, their treatment of others causes all kinds of conflict. They talked about generosity, but they were super materialistic. They talked about keeping their temper in check, but you saw them lose it all the time. Maybe the hypocrisy, the fakeness, even just the false teaching that you have heard in your life. Maybe you've seen some folks wearing the name of Jesus, and as you've come up, and they're supposed to be a leader, and you watch them, they've made it much harder to follow Jesus. There's a, a consequence Jesus is teaching here. Those of you who are being an example, you have a position of example, be careful how you live, how it affects other people, that they might be watching you. Well, how, how big of a deal is this, Jesus? Well, he, sa he says here, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck than to lead someone astray by your behavior. That's a Roman way of execution, by the way. One of the ways the Romans would execute is to take a boat, go out pretty, pretty deep into the sea, tie a rock around someone's neck, and throw them in. And Jesus is saying here, it would be better for you to be executed and thrown into the sea, a symbol for the Jews of where all the chaos is. It would be better for you to be executed by being tossed in where all the chaos comes from than for you who have an example to others to lead someone astray, to cause someone else to sin. Now here's an important point. Some of you might think, yeah, that's heavy, but good news, I'm not an example for anybody. I, I don't lead anybody. Careful with that. If you, if you publicly identify with Christ, you are wearing his name. Amen. Don't wear it in vain. And so the application for this point where he's, he's trying to get you to take very seriously how your behavior affects other people's following Christ, just I ask you to wrestle with this question. What sort of example are you setting? In your own household, gentlemen, if your sons talk to their wives the way that you do, are you, are you going to be okay with it? Wives, if your daughters grow up to talk to their husbands the way you talk about your husband, is you going to be okay with it? If you see a younger couple and how they're raising their kids and you're trying to give an example, would you be okay if everyone handled it the way you did? Are you being a good example? Once you put on that Jesus name, people are watching. Are you being a good example in your family? Are you being a good example to your coworkers? They they know in your, your biography on your social media that you put a Bible verse. They see you post those Bible verses to social media. Maybe you talk about church on Sundays, but then do you participate in the office gossip? Do you undermine people in your office? Are there some, re some really unfunny jokes that you just participate right with? What kind of example are you setting? For people who say, well, this person's in the faith, they go to church on Sundays, they post about it all the time. Are, are you leading them astray? Here's one for me, for all of us to consider. 
what example are you setting behind this device? What example are you setting when you are at the keyboard? And what's flowing out of us out into the public square that is the internet? Are, are, we, are we in the same feed of posting our Bible verses also just being really cantankerous, angry people? Yes, Careful. They're, they're watching. And it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck than for you to lead someone away from Christ. I'm not going to let young people off the hook here too. Some of you are in your teens, you're in your early 20s, and you say, yeah, man, this is heavy. Again, I'm so glad I don't have to be an example to anybody because I'm just a young person. First Timothy says, don't let anyone look down on your youth. You got, if you're going you're to wear the Jesus name, the way you behave with the other folks you play games online with, the way you behave online, the way you behave in school, if you're going to wear this name, People are watching. There's consequences to being a Jesus follower in public. And it's a heavy burden. And I can't tell you how much my instinct is to try to lift it off you right now, but I need you to feel it. Jesus is placing consequences on how we live our lives. There is that fourth commandment that says, don't take the, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I grew up in a situation where it was just mean, don't cuss with God's name in it. And it means so much more than that. Don't wear this name in vain. It means something to identify with Jesus. It's a very big deal to identify with him. Take it seriously. Be careful. You can make the decision not to identify with Jesus, but if you do, be careful with your conduct. And I'm asking you, I'm asking me, guys, that's been on me all week. I got to prepare for this. Every day I got to stare at the question, what example am I setting? As I walk to this microphone, as I, I got another microphone that I talk into, as I stand on stages, as I deal with people at work, when I got nephews watching, what oh, social media followings, what example am I setting? I'm asking you to wrestle with that today. What example am I setting for my kids, my spouse, my coworkers, my, my classmates? What's the example I set is I say I follow Jesus. Verses 43 through 48, we're going to read all those next. That first question is what example are you setting for others as a Jesus follower? Verse 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is be- better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus has a logical flow in his teaching here. He starts with, be careful how you live and how it affects other people. Second, take seriously how you live regarding your own sin, how it just affects you. Not just how it affects the world around you, but how your sin affects you. And can I just be honest at how weird and abrasive and hard this language is? plucking out eyes and cutting stuff off. This is, not my, this is not my kind of language. So it is hyperbole. Let's be clear. Don't do any of those things. This is a tool Jesus is using. It's a literary tool, a communication tool. He's exaggerating for effect. It's total hyperbole. And so if he doesn't mean it literally, and he doesn't, what is he saying through this hyperbole? When he would use pictures like that, these are very vivid, kind of gross off-putting pictures, what would he mean with that kind of hyperbole? He means this, deal with your sin. Deal with it decisively. 
we have a culture often that says, hey, go easy on yourself. And there's some good in that. But Jesus would say this, well, don't go easy on your sin, no. It's much too serious. And so you might ask, okay, I get it. This is a very vivid picture. Jesus is saying, don't let your sin fester. Don't let it stick around. How do I do that? How, how can I be obedient? How can I take my sin seriously? Well, here's a couple ideas from Scripture. Number one is confession. There's plenty of New Testament command to the believer. Confess your sins one to another. Also, confess them to God. And we do get good news in 1 John, uh, 1 John 3. Uh, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what might you do to take your sins as seriously as Jesus wants you to take it here? Confess it. Confess it to the Lord, but also here's a hard one, guys. Confess it to each other. I'm going to say it very carefully. Bring it out into the light. Don't bring it, you don't have to bring it out into the spotlight. I'm not telling you to get up on stage and tell everybody your sin, but bring it out in the light and tell somebody. I would be so naive to think that in this room there aren't some very secret sins. Bring it out into the light, guys. I know this. You cannot beat it alone. Whatever the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind as that secret sin, whatever image it is, images it is on your screen, whatever conversation it might be that you're having on an app that you should not be having that conversation. Maybe, you're, maybe it's a certain level of selfishness or anger that you show only in certain situations, and you don't tell anybody. you got to tell somebody. Yeah. I'm not, again, I'm not encouraging you. I'm very specifically not encouraging you to go tell everyone today. I am telling you, you will continue to lose to it. You will get beaten by it if you try to do it alone. It is, in, it is in part why Jesus starts with, hey, let's get together, everybody. Let's get the disciples together. He's going to finish with be at peace with each other. And as you're dealing with your sin, deal with your sin with each other. Deal with your porn problem with us. Tell somebody. If, you ha if, if there's that conversation you're having with someone at work that needs to quit, tell somebody. Get some accountability. I have benefited from this myself. Bring it out into the light it's terrifying to do confess your sin one to another you want to follow Jesus here Jesus says take your sin so seriously I'm going to give you some gross pictures to convince you how serious you should take it well okay how do I do that confess it after confess it ask for forgiveness I already gave you first John 3 yeah confess your sin ask for forgiveness he's faithful and just to forgive but maybe you need to ask someone else for forgiveness Maybe your selfishness, your anger, your gossip has hurt somebody. And you need to confess it and ask for forgiveness. Take sin that seriously. So confess it, ask for forgiveness, and then make some strategic choices. Yeah. There, might be some, there might be some people you need to cut ties with. There might be some, some apps on your phone that need to get deleted. There might need to be some real accountability with your spouse, with, with somebody here, about how to avoid that sin because, guys, I need you to hear what Jesus said here. It is better for you to lose the thing that you love so much, the sin, the secret you might be holding. It is better for you to lose it than to go into hell with it. So confess it. Ask for forgiveness. Make your strategic choices. Get some accountability and community around these sins because I am telling you this. I know it. You can't do it alone. You'll continue to fail. 
final thing on this is maybe be approachable. I asked this question of myself, can someone speak into my life? And I think, I think that's true. There's at least a couple of you men over the last, over my adult life who will speak in and say, hey man, be careful. Here's the thing I'm seeing. And so while you're confessing and, forget, and asking for forgiveness and making these strategic choices, I, I know what some of you might be thinking as I say, bring secret sins out into the light, confess, tell somebody. You might say, that's going to hurt so much. There's going to be so much wreckage if I do that. It would be so much easier to keep this sin secret. Listen to me. I know, but more importantly, Jesus knows how much it's going to hurt. That's in part why he gave you this illustration. If you say, Corey, if I, have, if I do what I need to to kill my sin, it's going to feel like my arm getting chopped off. It's going to feel like losing a foot and an eye getting plucked out. And Jesus is saying, yes, it will. It will feel like that. But it will be worth it. I can't pretend it won't hurt, but on the other side, there's so much freedom. There's so much community to have. So much freedom in not carrying a secret. There's so much power in conquering that sin through the Holy Spirit and with each other. Remember that again. He's talking about this in context of community and relationships because we can't fight sin alone. It's way too powerful. We need each other for accountability. We need each other for encouragement. And so he says here, through those analogies, through those hy- that, that hyperbole, take your sin seriously. How? Confess it. Ask for forgiveness. Make strategic choices. Be approachable for people to speak into your life on those sins. And I'm just telling you now, maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something in you right now that you know there's a sin you need to confess, ask forgiveness of. And I am telling you, it's going to hurt. And we're going to be there for you. We'll do it together. There's a part here in this text, too, that we just read that I, I do want to skip. I want to skip what's coming next, but we can't do it. It's in the text. Jesus says, take your sin seriously. It's better to take your sin seriously, get maimed, and go on into life than to keep your sin, hold it tightly, and go on into hell. And that is not a popular topic. Hell is not something that's going to get preached a lot around a lot of churches today. Yeah. He mentions it here three times, though. How can I ignore it? I may want to, but I can't. So let's talk about hell. Jesus talks about it here as a consequence for holding on to your sin instead of letting it go, instead of repenting of it. The word is actually Gehenna. It's a really powerful picture. Let me tell you a little story about it. It's actually a geographic place. He says it would be better for you to to chop off that hand than to have your body thrown into Gehenna. And Gehenna was a real place. It became the place where the human waste and refuse and trash and carcasses of dead animals, all of them went to this place and it was just a burning garbage dump. Centuries before, King Solomon, in one of his darker times, he built a shrine to a false god named Molech. Molech. He he built a shrine there to worship that god at this place called Gehenna. In succeeding kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, they made human sacrifices to Molech at Gehenna. And when a good king finally came along, Josiah, he finds what they've been doing and he desecrates the place. He burns it down and he makes it a trash dump. He makes it a metaphor for the judgment of God. That this idolatry, this sin is so harshly punished that it's going to always burn. We will always bring the, the carcasses and the refuse and the waste to this 
place. And so Gehenna for the original reader is, this is not, obviously not a good place. It never stops burning. It is a symbol of judgment. And then Jesus gives us a further definition. It'd be better to go into Gehenna. Well, what's Gehenna like? He quotes from Isaiah. He says, well, this is a place where the worm does not die. This hell that he's talking about, it does not die. The fire is not quenched. By giving those two analogies, he is emphasizing the eternality of hell. That it's a terrible place, and it's a forever place. Whatever He's, tr- he's trying to give us a picture with this word Gehenna. What, what, what do I think about when I think about Gehenna? What is hell going to be? It is going to be terrible, and it's going to be forever. There are growing voices in evangelicalism trying to bring back an ancient heresy called annihilationism. That what happens is not an eternal hell, it's just a periodic hell, just for a time, and then you annihilate, you become nothing. That is not what Jesus teaches here. He emphasizes it is a forever place. It's not just a separation from God for a time and then annihilation. Jesus does not leave that option. We are not temporal beings, we are eternal beings. And we will live in relationship to God for eternity in some way. We will live in relationship to God in love and trust in Him forever. Or we will live in our rebellion and opposition to Him forever. One of them, one of those two will be true. God never stops being loving or good. And so we will never stop being in relation to Him in one of those two ways. We will either experience His love or we will, we will experience His goodness and that His justice is punishing sin in hell. Yeah. R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century, has a somewhat funny story about this, but it's also quite serious. He's, he said he would get asked by people outside the faith, this picture of hell, it's a lake of fire, an, a, a never-ending a never burning. You don't believe that, do you? You don't actually believe there's a a never burn, a never ending lake of fire. And R.C. Sproul would say, no, I don't think that. And he said the people outside the faith would get this great look of relief. Oh, good. So you, this very wise Bible teacher, don't think that. And R.C. Sproul would then say, yeah, I think it's way worse. I think whatever Jesus means by Gehenna, whatever picture he's trying to paint, it's only a picture of, it's only a metaphor of something much more intense. Right. I want to read to you from Jonathan Edwards a little bit here. He has maybe the most famous sermon in at least American history called Sinners into the Hands of an Angry God. And talking about hell, he wrote this. How strange is it that men can enjoy themselves when they are hanging by a thread over eternal burnings, not knowing how soon the thread will break? If it breaks, they're gone. They're lost forever. There is no remedy. Do we consider how, how much dread there will be in such a place? How dismal will it be when you are under these racking pains to know assuredly that you will never be delivered from them? When you wish that you might be turned into nothing, but you will have no hope of it. When you rejoice, if you would have any relief at all, after you will have endured these torments for millions of ages, after the sun and moon and stars are gone, you will have still no hope of it. After you will have worn a thousand more such ages, you will still be no closer. You will not be one whit nearer to the end of your torments. Because I know this is uncomfortable. But this might also be the most important thing that we talk about 
It's one of the most important things that we can get out of Scripture. It is no fun at all. But can I challenge you with this application? Do you accept this reality? Are we, are we putting the reality of eternal hell to the, to the back burner of our minds because we don't want to think about it? Do you accept Jesus' teaching on hell? Jesus' teaching here is that it's terrible and it's forever. There's some immediate consequence there, I think, to the urgency with which we do or don't share the gospel. Do we believe this is true? Do our lives match that we believe this is true? If we get uncomfortable, I will admit admit this to you, I'm very uncomfortable with that concept. But as I study the the concept of eternal, painful, torturous hell, my, my flesh is uncomfortable with that concept. And if you are uncomfortable with it too, here's what I found of myself and from plenty of reading this week of those who are wiser in the faith. When we get uncomfortable with it, it's probably because we don't understand the seriousness of sin enough. How serious it is to rebel against our maker. To sin against the God of the universe, the maker of all things. We should really be blown away that there's any mercy at all, and instead we are scandalized by his judgment. I'm going to read you one more quote. We're going to move on from this part of Jesus' teaching here. But This is from Spurgeon. If you struggle, like I do sometimes with the concept of a very real eternal hell, Spurgeon says this to people like me, people like you. He says, side by side with the bright crown of heaven... Behold another crown. It is the iron crown of hell. For Christ reigns there supreme too. Not only in the dazzling brightness of heaven, but in the black impenetrable darkness of hell is his omnipotence felt and his sovereignty acknowledged. The chains which bind damned spirits are the chains of his strength. The fires which burn are the fires of his vengeance. The burning rays that scorch through their eyes and melt their hearts are flashed from his eyes. There is no power in hell besides his. The very devil knows his might. He chains that great dragon, and even if he gives that dragon temporary liberty, still he holds the chain. He can draw him back. Hell trembles at him. The very howlings of lost spirits are but deep bass notes of his praise. While in heaven the glorious notes shout forth his goodness, in hell the deep growlings resound his justice and his certain victory over all his foes. Thus, his, Jesus' empire, is higher than the highest heaven and deeper than the lowest hell. Jesus has given you, given me today, a very real warning about eternity. Admittedly, the Western Church, Europe, the United States, we have downplayed this reality in favor of happier songs, in favor, in favor of focusing on, on some uh, happier sermons and happier topics. We have downplayed this reality, but it's important to keep these truths in sight. There's... There are the sermons like last week and the ones we're going to come to next week that are not like this, but there are some lessons that we've got to take seriously here. And here's in part what Jesus is getting to by talking about to deal with your sin. 
because it can affect others. Deal with your sin, because if you hold a sin beyond me, there could be hell-like consequences. He is saying your greatest enemy is your own sin. Hell is the destination of sin, so deal with it. And again, deal with it with each other. And that's the last two verses here that we're going to come to. Jesus gives all these warnings in a sandwich here where he talks about being with each other. So verse 49 and then verse 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's a lot of a lot of weird phrases in there we don't hear, right? Being salted with fire, have salt in yourselves. Some translations say have salt among yourselves. Here's what all that means. So that salted with fire picture, it actually comes from Leviticus 2, that when an animal was placed out on the altar, that animal would be salted, and that salt actually might become fire as the fire is burning when, as it comes down. And so it's, it is a picture he's giving us to contrast with the previous picture. So he says, there is punishment for sin in hell fire. But there's another fire. It's a purifying fire. The purifying fire of, of sacrifice for sin. Paul makes this more clear later as he writes that we it's our reasonable service, our, our reasonable service to be a living sacrifice, not a sacrifice that stays on the altar as an offering to God, not a sacrifice that stays on the altar to offer something to our God, but then gets up and lives a life of sacrifice, that what we do is worship. We're I mean, that's, that's a weird phrase, right? Living sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that's dead, but this is a living sacrifice. That's us as we walk around and, and worship with our lives. So it says everyone's going to be salted with fire. It might be the fires of hell, or it could be the fires of purity, the purifying fires. He says there then, salt, talking, talking about salt losing its saltiness. Salt wasn't uh, often pure then. It was mixed with a lot of minerals. It was pulled out of the Dead Sea. And you could pull a mineral out of the Dead Sea, and it looks like you've got some salt. But then as you try to use it, it doesn't have the effect of salt. It looks like it, but it doesn't taste like salt. It, doesn't, uh, it, it, it does not preserve like salt once preserved. It doesn't purify like salt purifies. It looked like it, but it doesn't do it. That's a warning that Jesus is giving his disciples. Don't be deluded by worldliness. The, the argument they were having last week about who is the greatest, that's a, an argument that only being deluded by the world can bring. That's his call to them and his call to us. You can look all the parts. You can show up on Sunday. You can sing the songs. You can recite the scriptures. But you might be deluded yeah. by the world. The way you think might not be purified by the salt of Scripture and by the salt of, of being purified by one another, being challenged by one another. And so that's the challenge for you today in this, in this part of the text is, have you been deluded? Do you look like salt, but you don't have the effect of salt? The, the, preserve, the preserving and the purifying effect of salt? And that final part of this, this teaching is have salt in yourselves or it can be among yourselves. And he finishes this way, and be at peace with each other. When you think of that phrase, have salt among yourselves, have salt in yourselves, it, for the modern reader, that means nothing. But it's, it's not a sentence we would ever say. But think about what salt does. It purifies, it preserves, 
It also maximizes. That's one of the point of using salt in cuisine is it, you don't taste the saltiness. It brings out the full flavor of whatever you put the salt on. So the effect that we should have on each other then is purify each other. We talked about that earlier. Confess your sin one to another. and It has a purifying effect. Maximize each other. Encourage each other. What does salt do for food? It maximizes it. Maximizes it. Don't tear each other down. Build each other up. Maximize the gifts God has given to you by sharing them with others and encouraging others. It's creating peace with each other. This very hard teaching from Jesus, it is certainly a passage against sin, but it is also for us. It's to have purity in ourselves and to have unity with each other, to have peace with each other. Because we have done this application as we go, I just want to summarize for you and then we're going to sing together. This is a tough passage. It's some of the hardest teachings of Jesus. And the takeaways from it are are to take your example seriously. Remember, people are watching. Take your own sin seriously. Take that hyperbole to heart. It is hyperbole. Don't do anything to yourself, but take it seriously. Jesus wants you to take it. To, to really engage with the concept of how do I deal with the sin that is wrecking me. And remember that in all of this, it's in the context of us being responsible for each other in some ways. All these things are so hard. We're going to need each other for them. So the command of Jesus today is to cut some sin, to cut sin out of your life. And not because he's trying to steal your fun. He wants to give you something better I mentioned earlier that if you deal with your sin, it might feel like cutting something off. This is just like a doctor for a human or a vet to an animal. Sometimes you got to do something that really hurts the patient, but it's good for the patient. That is what the Lord would do with our sin. It will hurt to deal with, but for your own sake, for the sake of others who are watching, give up your sin. Follow Christ. Repent of any unrepented sin. Be open to accountability. That's Jesus' call to you today is let's deal with our sin. Final thing today. Anytime we come to the Gospels, we get a chance to see Jesus. So let's focus on him to finish. I hope you feel the weight of sin today. I hope you understand its seriousness. And maybe no week on the calendar shows us how serious it is. We're remembering this Palm Sunday where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But then we start working through this week and we come to Maundy Thursday where we will remember it. The God of the universe who left glory, put on flesh, and he's on his hands and feet, hands and knees, washing the feet of men in the next few hours who will betray him, who will abandon him, and deny him? We will remember on Good Friday, because of our sin, our Jesus in the garden saying, Lord, Father, can this cup pass for me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That Good Friday of Jesus on the cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? All for your sin if you are in Christ today? Feel the weight of it today. Feel the weight of sin, the seriousness of it. And on this week, as we are remembering and focusing on Jesus' seminal week, his seminal work on the cross, know that it's such a big deal. God had to come put on a body to deal with your sin. 
So take it seriously as you go out of here, and let's do all of that together. We're going to need each other to deal with our sin because it's not easy. So focus on Jesus, his example, understand the weight of it that he came to deal with it as we're about to get on, uh, go around the table of the Lord and remember that. And remember that we're going to have to deal with our sin together. It can't be done alone. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up. We're going to get to sing a 